He stated that he had been appointed to suggest a president for Howard College. So there was a lot of industry investment when I grew up, a lot of progressiveness. However, it was still a typical small southern town. To be perfectly honest with you, um, I didn't know what Alabama was until I stepped foot in Alabama. I was not greeted by hecklers. I was greeted by Martha and Fox. Well, I'll just explain the whole like saga of the trip to Docena because it was all kind of crazy. Um, so I had sent, I had like tried cold calling any, which when I say like all of the businesses in the area, there was really not that many, but just anything that had the same zip code as what, I don't know, Docena or what I could find. Um, and either like lines were dead, people just weren't responsive or like, there's nothing there. Why are you doing this project? <laughs> um, even the post office lady was, she was very friendly, but she's like, there's, this is kind of why <laughs> so I was like well you know what like I'm not getting anywhere with these calls I'm gonna just go out there hi and welcome back to sam.way we're your hosts Claire Davis and Michelle Little and today we are bringing you the story of the story of Docena Alabama the process of collecting oral histories doesn't usually get much airtime but the road to this project crossed decades and generations with enough surprising turns that we think it merits its own story this past spring, intern Cameron Tini collected oral histories from a tiny, unincorporated community eight miles outside of Birmingham. She knew that the town had a history with coal mining. It was named after the nearby number 12 mines for the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, after all. But as far as finding willing participants, she was running into some trouble. So I was just like, well, I'll just go to this church and like, hopefully people will be there. Um, if they're not there now, then they probably won't be another time in the week. So I drove out there and kind of like, I, I just walked in and then at the end of the service, I was like, oh, I'll just kind of like, you know, try to get the pastor and ask him if he knows of anyone in the community that would be willing to talk to me. But I mean, there were only seven people in this congregation. So it was pretty obvious that I was, you know, not a normal like person that came. And so um, they all like, swarmed me and were super interested in why I was there. And as soon as I told them, you know, about the project and wanting to interview someone, like, so many people were like, oh, well, you know, I was like, my dad worked for the mines or I was married to a miner. They all had connections to the mines. So it was just like, whoa, this is way more than I could have imagined. During that initial visit to Docena Baptist Church, Cameron met Nancy Fushi, a regular attender of the church, who mentioned that her mother might be willing to share some of her stories of growing up in Docena. The very next day, Cameron packed a recorder and headed up to meet Nancy and her mother, Faye Mason, for a joint interview. I think it was just fun interviewing Faye and Nancy because they were like mother and daughter. So it was just so cute because Faye would be telling a story and then Nancy would be like, no, well, make sure you tell her about this detail. And she's like, oh, I'm getting there. Or like this. So it was just really sweet to, because I could tell they're very close and their dynamic as I was interviewing them, I think was like different than, you know, if I just interviewed them individually. Um, because I think, you know, Nancy had heard her mom tell these stories about her growing up and then, um, Faye and her mind she was like oh these are just stories so she would leave out certain details and and she'd be like well don't forget this and I, I thought it was cool how you know even the things that Faye may have not considered like super important like really meant a lot to her daughter and then to me also did you tell her about uh, back in the 40s I think or 50s 
where they had the ice cream vendor would ride on the bicycle. Oh and yeah, sell ice cream. Yeah. Oh yeah. Tell that me about was that. fun. <laughs> the ice cream men's come in. The bell would ring, and we'd all go out and get ice cream, and, and uh, also sold tamales hot out of the oh, out of the bicycle, and instead of a hot box, I mean cold box, they'd have a hot box on the front of the bicycle like that. Of tamales. Uh-huh. That's, that's so good. good. And the milkman would deliver the milk. Yeah, with dairy. <laughs> wow, that's it. And the egg man, come, and we also had a, we had a family, I mean a community garden, and in the wartime we had victory gardens at school. I can get you some pictures of that. That's good. Each we had to raise something, you know, at school. But we had a truck that came here later that delivered fresh produce. Cameron isn't the first Sanford student to travel to Docena armed with a microphone and a list of questions. In 1979, a few history classes recorded the stories of miners and town residents under the guidance of Dr. Marlene Reichard. Riker donated these interviews to Special Collection, where they remained on the original reels until recently. Thanks to our generous donors in 2016, money was raised to digitize the decaying reels. Once finally digitized in 2017, Cameron used the interviews to familiarize herself with the town's history in preparation for her own interviews. Well, and also that was another really cool thing about the project was that it wasn't just, it was using a very tangible, not evidence, but historical information that I could use to, you know, then learn more about the present that had already been done. So it was cool to kind of like build on what had been done in the same mean or medium as like in the past. As Cameron worked through the 30-year-old interviews, she encountered names of individuals and families that greatly aided her research but did not appear in the current Docena phone directories. However, her search wasn't finished yet. A second trip to Docena Baptist yielded an amazing connection. But we went back to the church with the whole story crew, and there we met. It was a lady that I met before, but she said that her mom had written a book about her growing up in Docena, and we were like, oh, this would be great for, like, primary source um, research and whatnot. And so we went to her house to go pick it up, and then when she was writing her mom's information on the back, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's Melba Kazari. And she was like, what? her interview from the 70s and so her mom was actually one of the people who the interviewees that we had had from the 1970s and she was really jazzed about that as was I. Melba Kazari was interviewed in 1979 by Sanford student Joy Richardson. The interview covered multiple reels as she described her experience moving into Docena as a child and returning to raise a family. Kazari mentions writing a book about Docena. This is an interview with Mrs. Melba Kazari for the Sanford University Oral History Program, and my name is Joy Richardson. We're in Ms. Kazari's home, and the date is March 12, 1979. Ms. Kazari has written a book on the history of Docena, and it was published in 1977. Is that right? Um, Ms. Kazari, I'd just like to ask you, what is it about Docena that has intrigued you and made you want to write the history? The fact that it was and is a very good place to live and bring up a family. Mm -hmm. People seldom leave when the older people die after their children take over the homes. Somebody does move away, they usually 
move back as soon as the house is available, they'll buy it and move back. The Jacks was one example, wasn't it? You know, most of the people that do move away are very unhappy. And you know, for one thing, this is where my relatives have been for a long time, and it's where I intend to be to bring up my children and my grandchildren, my, my fourth generation. It was interesting because then I remembered Melba talking about a book that she had written. It was just, I don't know, it was a really, I guess, like an oral history victory in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, that was, and that was probably my favorite part of the project was actually like going and meeting those people and making those connections. In addition to making the connection between Mrs. Kazari and her book, Cameron interviewed the instigator behind the original set of interviews, retired Sanford professor Dr. Marlene Reichard. Over coffee at the library's bagel shop, Dr. Reichard discussed her first experiences with oral history as a graduate student. I actually um, took a class, I guess, in oral history when Wayne Flint was a professor here and I was doing my master's here at Sanford at that time. And I, I can't be sure because I took several classes from him before he left for Auburn. But I think I took his oral history class. And then when he, when I started teaching here, um, they needed someone to handle the oral history classes. And so I took over the classes. And so I taught an oral history, taught the oral history classes. But when I was working on my dissertation. I was having trouble finding traditional records, written records. The topic had to do with programs that U.S. Steel had implemented, and U.S. Steel was very protective of their records. They didn't want anybody to see any of their records. And so I kept wondering, how am I going to get into this topic if there are no records for me to tap into? And I decided that if I could identify people who had been connected with the programs and interview them, it was kind of a back doorway of getting into the topic. And so it, it dealt with welfare capitalism, which was very paternalistic programs that TCI, which was a division of U.S. Steel, put in for their workers. And there were several motivations. One was it was obviously anti-unionism. They didn't want their workers to unionize. But there were other things as well. So I began to identify people who lived in the villages, the company towns, and people who had worked for the company and began to compile a list of people to interview. Over time, Dr. Reichard's practice in oral history extended into her teaching, and she told Cameron her rationale behind choosing communities and projects close to Birmingham. So then when, when I began teaching the oral history class, what I liked was for 
the students to all work on a central theme so that they could communicate with each other, uh, they could share each other's research. It was less of an individual thing in right. class. And uh, that at the end we would come out with something that would be worthy of being put in special collection. So the natural thing was to pull upon contacts and resources that I had. So I had done all these interviews in these villages and everything and new people there. So I used Docena as one of the projects for one class. Docena was a coal mining village that was owned by USDLTCI and I could put the students in touch with people that they could interview. They could use some of what I had done in the past in research as the basis so that they would have knowledge about the company town, the programs, and that would help them develop their questions that they utilized in their history interviews. So what did a historian trained on books and physical records find in oral history work that made it so essential to her classes? You know, I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did, because later I actually got into some U.S. Steel records. Oh, and interesting. And that's, that's a whole other story, but, and a lot of serendipity there. <laughs> but because I'd done the oral histories first, I could then check the accuracy of the memories against the written records that I finally got into. And if I'd been into the written records first, it might have skewed the way I did the interviews. That's interesting. But um, it validated the oral history to me as, as a method. And one of the things that I was focusing on was I didn't want to do elitist interviews. A lot of oral history programs have focused on elites, on presidents, um, people in high positions in government or high positions in the military. But the class, the way we designed it here, was to give voice to people who wouldn't appear that much in the written record. And so one of the things that I found with the interviews that I did and with the interviews that the students did was that these people were so appreciative that somebody wanted to hear their story. Wow, that's and they they just thought that well at first they would say well I don't have anything important to tell you you know and then when you got across to them that you you were looking for how they lived their lives what it was like in a company village how they reacted to the programs that the company put in were they union members uh, how did they feel about the union versus the company programs. They began to open up, and they were excited that somebody wanted to hear their story, their version. Yeah. Beyond preserving the stories of the everyday person, Dr. Record found increasing value in using oral history in the classroom. Just as she had learned the value of oral history in Dr. Flint's class as a graduate student, she hoped to instill the same respect for personal accounts in her students. What was, um, I guess, your main hope for them as they were like, conducting these interviews, uh, or like main reason for like? Well, I guess there were several. I don't know if there was a main hope. I, 
obviously in oral history class, I wanted them to see the value of oral history. And the readings were all directed to that. Some of the readings that were assigned had to do with Birmingham history as Mm -hmm. an industrial site. But some of the readings had to do with oral history projects that had taken place in other parts of the, of the country. So I wanted them, as history majors, to learn that it's not always just the written record, that there are other ways of getting into what happened at a particular time. But also, for most of them, Given the nature of Sanford students, they had never been to a place like Dovsina or Muscota. <laughs> yeah. And so it was also introducing them to another side of town, uh, another genre of people, uh, another way of life. And they. Most of them made very deep friendships with the people that they interviewed. That is so cool. Many of them went back later to visit with the people they interviewed. That's awesome. And so I think it added a dimension to their experience. I mean, you've probably heard Sanford referred to as a bubble. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this definitely got them out of the the bubble. bubble. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, though, what Dr. Reichard most wanted to emphasize was the importance and permanence of students' work to others in the historical record, and by extension, the importance of sharing that collected knowledge to keep their stories alive. And, well, I guess kind of on that note, like with what we're trying to do with this project and kind of bringing back these, the interviews that were conducted in Mm -hmm. your class, do you have any sort of like hopes for what you know, how or things that you'd like us to emphasize? Or? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I guess to a certain extent that students can produce things that are of lasting value. Mm-hmm. That those interviews that they did weren't just to get a grade, weren't just for that class, but those interviews that they did are now in special collection, that they can be utilized by researchers on many levels, and and we do, we've had a lot of people come and do research because we have got photographs of industrial history, we've got all these interviews about industrial history. And so people who are working on dissertations or family history or um, visual images have been coming here. And they have been using material that was done by Sanford students. So I guess in a way, you know, that as a student, you're not just, particularly as a history major, you're not just working for a grade, you can be producing something that has got value to people well outside of the class and well outside of Sanford. So I know that I see the need for and uses of oral history everywhere I look, an occupational hazard I guess, but to me this story exemplifies all of this perfectly. 
And not only the powerful lasting effect of doing oral history, but also now bringing it into the digital realm. I mean, here we have a graduate student from over 40 years ago getting excited about oral history methodology, then deciding to use it in her classroom when she becomes a history professor. Then she runs this project in the Docena community in the 1970s and donates the reels to our library here at Sanford. And the Sanford Library keeps them safe and sound until they can be digitized recently. And now we have current students learning from these older interviews and now conducting new interviews. And now we're able to bring all these stories to you, our audience, in a podcast. And we have another student, English major Emily Yuri, who is set to do another internship on these same Docena interviews this coming fall. She's going to be indexing the transcripts and running a language analysis on the corpus of the interviews and putting it all together on a website. So this type of thing can really only happen with oral history. And I guarantee you that if Dr. Reichard's students had just written research papers about TCI mining towns, we would not be having this conversation right now. Definitely. I know from my own personal experience that before this project even appeared on my radar, an acquaintance of mine who knew I worked in the story office approached me and asked if we had a copy of his interview that he'd conducted as a Sanford student years ago. And lo and behold, it was actually one of the Docena interviews. It was amazing to see the effect that one project had on this man. He could remember so many details from the conversation and was clearly excited that a copy of it might still exist in the world. There's no way he would have remembered a paper as fondly or that a paper could have left such an impact on him. And now we get to share interviews like his so that they can continue to influence people 40 years in the future. As always, thanks for listening. Next time, we'll share more from Docena and dive into what life in a southern company town was like. Until then, make make waves! Our theme music was made by Sanford student Carrie Joyner. Background music was composed by Carrie Joyner and Lucas Gonze and Lobo Loco from the Free Music Archive. Cameron Tini conducted the interviews with Dr. Marlene Reichard, Nancy Fushi, and Faye Mason. Joy Richardson conducted the interview with Miss Melba Kazari. Claire Davis conducted the interview with Cameron Tini. This show was written and hosted by Claire Davis and Michelle Little. This is a Sanford Traditions and Oral History Recordings Initiative production. For more information on Sanford University or our program, visit us on our webpage on the Sanford website or follow us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Sanford underscore story and on Twitter at SU underscore story.